father's tent There you are You're running for your life You're a shooting star And all the years No one knows Just how hard you worked But now it shows In one shining moment It's all on the line One shining Coaches, welcome to the Championship Vision Podcast. This is Coach Kevin Furtado. Today we have episode 129 with Coach Mark Neffendorf. Coach Neffendorf was head coach at Glencoe High School in Oregon from 1980 to 1996. He was also the head coach, boys basketball coach, at Westview High School from 1996 to 2000. He has an overall record of 436 and 88. He was the state champions 1990 at Glencoe High School and 2000 at Westview High School. He's five-time Oregon Coach of the Year. He coached in the WBCA National All-Star Game in 1997. The past 40 years, owner of Class of the Field basketball camp and tournaments. He has been a high school principal the last 19 years after coaching. Currently, he is retired. Mark Neffendorf has spent 40 years as an educator in Oregon with the last 15 in administration. He serves as a middle school teacher and high school a high school science teacher and as a head coach at the high school level for over 20 years. In his administrative career, he has led three different Oregon high schools at Scapoose, Ben, and recently Tigered High. Mark is best recognized as being the leader of change and helping to develop a culture of community that has helped move the school to greater academic achievement. Now, this is going to be a great podcast in a sense that uh, Mark has done such a tremendous job, not only in the coaching profession, as you saw with his his overall record of 436 and 88, but he's done a tremendous job uh, as principal of three really tough, tough academic schools. He had to turn around three schools um, who were kind of failing in the academic side and so forth. And he did a great job turning these schools around, kind of changing the culture of these schools. So I'm really going to pick his brain on how he did this. So let's welcome Coach Mark Neffendorf. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Kevin. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. And yourself? Good. Uh, I just want to make first connect. goes a little crazy, but I, I can hear you just fine. Yeah, and I, I hear you really well. Excellent, excellent. Hey, welcome to the podcast. And I, I got to tell you, um, Mike Meek spoke so highly of you, man. I, I, and you said, man, you got to get this guy on. And um, after studying you know, your career and everything, man, you've done a lot in the game. And I really appreciate joining joining me and kind of sharing with uh, what are some secrets to your success and so forth. So thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for Thanks for having me. I'll see if I have anything to offer, but uh, that's nice of Mike. He's he's a really successful coach. Mike is. Yeah, no doubt. He's gonna. He, I'm telling. You, he's doing an amazing job at every level. Uh, high school D three. Now he's at a Division one school. I tell you, man. He's he's an up and comer right now. Hopefully, he'll get back to his team eventually, like the rest of us. But Mark, kind of tell me a little bit about how you got started. 
uh, as a youth uh, in the game of basketball, but also how did that drive you not only to become a great coach that you were, but also an excellent principal and changing the lives of so many kids? How did that start when you were a youth? Well, probably like everybody else that got into coaching, uh, you know, I enjoyed athletics. I played football, basketball, and baseball. And I, uh, my dad was an ex-teacher coach, and uh, I, I loved being around it. So, but to be honest with you, basketball was kind of uh, the third of my sports. I was when I came out of college, I was going to be a football or baseball coach. And when I got hired, they said, "Well, we need you to coach a winter sport too." So I said, "Well, I'll take the ninth grade girls basketball team." I don't know why I said that, but I did right. and uh, loved it, coached it for two years. And then they opened the new high school in Hillsborough, Oregon, and I got hired to be the head coach. And the other sports just kind of fell away as I got uh, more and more into basketball and uh, loved the direction. And and so that's that's kind of how I I got into it. And of course, I got into it like everybody else. My original goal when you're a young guy, I think I was 24 when I got hired, is, you know, I want to win championships. You know, that's what it was all about. And of course, over time, you know, as you grow and mature, you start seeing what the real effects of athletics are. And that's kind of led me into athletics, into coaching, and then into, you know, being a high school principal. Yes. And I, I tell you, I enjoyed reading so much about you. And I, uh, you can you can tell obviously your your career record and your success that you had on the as a basketball coach. But I, I got to tell you, Mark, what you've done as a principal, you appear to me as a person that can come in and completely change the culture of these schools. You've went in some tough situations. Tell me about like first of all, why do you love to go around and turning around these schools and Tell us a little bit about, you know, that journey of, of being a principal and making change in lives. Well, I, I think, again, you learn that through athletics, first of all. Um, you know, the, like I said, the longer I coach, and I, I, wasn't, I was only a head coach for 20 years, so a lot of guys are for 30 and 40, but I think what I uh, learned as I got older, is it was the impact that you had on lives of kids and trying to make them successful um, in their life. And so that just magnified as I started to work a little bit into administration and coaching, I was doing a combination. Uh, I could see you could have a bigger impact on a, on a bigger group of people, uh, you know, than just your basketball program. And so I, that kind of led me into the administrative uh, part of it, even though it was very, very difficult to give up coaching. Um, I, I just was hoping I could have a bigger impact on a larger group. So I got into that. And, and I, I think what really helped me is that um, I grew up in Hillsborough, Oregon, almost all my life. And I taught and coached there for the first almost 20 years. And when I, when I decided to leave and try something else, I just absolutely loved going into a new situation, trying to make an impact and I, I, it almost became addictive. I wanted to do it again. So I went to the next place, you know, the next school and uh, got into administration. And I got a principal job and I spent a few years there and loved it. And you tried to make a difference and I want to go do another one. I, I don't know what it was. It was just uh, kind of in my DNA that I, I felt like I was a fixer and 
And uh, I wanted to do that. And you did it for four or five years in a place and you moved on. And that's not for everybody, but uh, that's kind of what drove me. So that's kind of how that happened. Yeah, I always think so. I have a lot of respect for uh, principals and administrators. because I know it's a tough job. Um, and I, I think it's there's so much pressure on that. Not only are you dealing with motivating kids, but, man, you have to motivate us teachers and coaches, right, which is a hard job. Give us some secrets on how you motivate, because Mike has shared with me that you really sat with him and was really direct and honest with him. I appreciate that with administrators being honest with me. Well, I, I think that's the key, right? It's, it's called integrity. And uh, if you can't trust and believe the people that are leading you, uh, you lose that in a hurry and you, and you have no effect. And so what was most important to me um, was that I built strong relationships with people, but those were built on trust. They were built on honesty and uh, I mean, you, you have to learn how to speak into people's lives. But um, if you're going to lead somebody, uh, you know, you hope that you get them to follow you and you're not pushing them. Right. I mean, we've all heard that term. And so I think that's built strictly on getting to know people. But uh, you, you got to be honest, because if you don't have any integrity, uh, nobody follows. And whether you're coaching a basketball team of young gals or guys, kids can see right through dishonesty. They can see right through, um, you know, you're not being genuine. And so uh, that's what I, I always based it on. And I felt like if I was honest with people um, and that meant admitting when I would make mistakes as well and be real to people, and not, uh, I, it's, it's not like, hey, I'm the boss, you follow. It's, hey, we're all in this together. Let's figure this out. But uh, at the same time, you know, you got to give some direction. So um, that, that's how I always felt at work because that's always how I wanted to be treated. And so whether I was coaching or administrative or even if you, you're in the business world, uh, I really believe relationships is what it's all about. Yeah, and definitely connecting, right, Mark? You got to connect with people. I think it's right. I mean, you got to really um, find a way to really connect with people. And that's what I want you to talk about next. How did you know? Let's take, for example, Mike Meek. Obviously, this guy is, is a great coach. Did you see that in him? Is that why you kind of took an interest? Um, now, I know he was at a pretty good school and a good program. But what did you see in Mike that really enabled you to kind of try to get in there and try to inspire and motivate him? Well, I think there was a couple of things. I ended up, I, I was towards the end of my coaching career and he was beginning and I ended up being a vice principal at a high school and we had the basketball opening. And so um, our principal didn't know anything about athletics. She said, um, <laughs> you know, you, you do the hiring. And I thought, great. And the hardest decision maybe one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make the two finalists for that job were Mike Meek and the girl that was probably the best basketball player I've ever coached. And I'm really wow. close to her. But what I liked about Mike more than anything, uh, his work ethic, uh, he had real drive, totally humble. The guy is as humble as you get. Uh, he listens. He wanted to be better. And uh, he understood the game of basketball, which, you know, you got to have that piece of it, too. 
So when I saw Mike were those traits, uh, I watched him when I coached against him. His kids liked him. His parents liked him. Anywhere Mike's been, uh, the kids, the parents uh, like him. They follow him. And, uh, and that's because he can communicate. And like any job, you, you've got to be able to show people that you care about them. You know, the old saying that uh, you gotta, they got to know that you care before they care what you know. And I think that was really true. And I think Mike epitomizes that. And hopefully in the jobs I've had uh, that you hope people follow you is because they really know that you care about them personally. It's that's bigger than the job itself. Yeah, those are all great. I mean, those are all great points. But I tell you what I love is I think in a good administrator like yourself, you see those intangibles. I'm not sure if that's done by a lot of people hiring for coaching jobs. I think they see resumes and wins and things like that. You really look for intangibles. And I think that separate, that's how you get good coaches on your staff, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, um, you know, I don't think any of us particularly like being around people who you can't communicate with, that you can't enjoy, that you can't get to know personally, uh, because those things carry over into the people they're working with as well, whether you're hiring teachers who are going to work with your students or you're hiring coaches or assistant coaches. You know, you uh, th those are the things that I – it's kind of like when you ask what are your top five things to run in a girl's – uh, or a, a basketball program, none of those had to do with you got to know X's. I mean, you got to know that stuff, right? X's and O's, but there were more important things uh, to the real foundation of being successful in whatever um, you're running. And so, yes, those are definitely the things that I uh, look for. And number one is relational skills. If they're, if they're not relational and it's all about them, then I, I just, I, I can't use them. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's um and, and can you sense that in a interview? Um, or does it take you have to really kind of research and talk to other people? Give me give me some secrets on that, Mark. Uh, because I, I always want to know how people really hire. Um, do they have a sense? It sounds like to me you have a good sense of people. Well, I hope so. I mean, um, you know, let's let's say it's an interview, whether it's for a coaching assistant coaching position or hiring a head coach or hiring teachers, you know, I have a series of questions. They're not very, very elaborate. I just want them at some point, they've got to tell me what's most important is uh, using whatever verbiage they use that uh, I care about the kids or I'm, I'm in this business because of the kids. If it's all about, Hey, I'm here just to win a championship. I mean, I want to hear that. But I want to hear how we're going to do it and how they better do it for me is uh, my biggest concern is about helping develop uh, kids, make them grow. And so if I don't hear it in some answers right away, I'll rephrase a question. I'll find a different way to ask it. And, you know, sometimes I know they have it in them and they don't know what you know, how to express it. And so I'll do some sure. research with people and they'll tell me, Oh no, no, he, that's how this person really is. So, um, but if, if I can't find some way to find out that they care about kids, 
uh, care about other people, then it's at least for me, it's not the right, the right hire or the right person to work with. Right. And that's great. And for all the coaches that, that listen to my podcast, that's great advice right there because we all, many of us are going to be, you know, hopefully we'll be interviewing again and so forth. I might stay here at my school forever, but um, I think it's great advice for coaches really to go in there and really focus on what they can do to talk about, hey, how can they relate and connect with kids? Because it's not about the X's and O's. Because if you can connect with kids, that to me is probably the most important. That's, that's the highest priority, right? Exactly. I mean, I, I've i sat down with a few guys that are friends of mine that are coaches that could out X. I mean, I watch some of their X and O's and I go, wow, that is unbelievable but <laughs> sure you know their success rate isn't so unbelievable because uh whatever reason the kids have a body and they don't trust them I, I i don't know what it all is but um all, all x's and o's are important right and, and what you do and how you fit them with your you know the talent of your kids but um i i, I still say the mike meeks the brad smiths out here in oregon those guys who had really strong relationships with their kids and could motivate because they knew they were cared for. Those are the guys that are successful. It's why Mike's successful. It's why Brad Smith was so successful. Yeah, it's so true. And I, I, I've spoken to three Oregon basketball legends, Kurt Gilsdorf, Mike, you, and I got to get Brad on. You got to connect me with uh, coach Smith um, because I love talking to you, Oregon guys, man, you guys have something special going on out there in Oregon. Uh, what do you think about Oregon basketball? Um, I don't think a lot of us are aware. I, we, and I'm in Georgia, and we have good basketball out here. But, man, Oregon high school basketball is pretty dang good, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a little different than it used to be. You know, uh, a bunch of us were young guys when we got started. We all wanted to be head coaches, and nobody thought about it. We were on the ground level of girls' basketball out here. So we were highly motivated coaches who were looking for – you know, football, baseball jobs, maybe boys basketball. And because they, you know, back then it was so hard to, you had to work your way up. You know, it was going to be five, 10 years to get a head job where now you can come out of high school or out of college and practically get one. So, you know, in girls basketball, we had a whole bunch of really motivated, hardworking coaches at the ground level. And from the mid 80s to just a little past 2000, I mean, we'd play national tournaments with our high school teams. We'd play our all-star teams, and our Oregon kids were as good as any, really, any state around. Um, that, and I think because of our rules that we had out here in Oregon, clear back then, you could do anything you wanted in the summer. So we could. Wow. You know, we yeah. Did, we had no limitation. In fact, we had no limitation during the school year. We were working our kids out year-round. We we wanted them to play other sports, but we still had some time to work them out. And to be honest with you, I think Oregon, we were way ahead of a lot of people back then because they had more restrictions. And that's since tightened up here and loosened up other places. And, you know, we're, we're not so special from the, from the commitment level anymore. And, uh, but we still have good uh, kids. Uh, it's, it's really changed. There's way more of the all-star traveling stuff as opposed right. to when we were doing it, we were traveling with our high school teams and even playing with our high school teams in national tournaments uh, just to get better. And we held some big tournaments, national tournaments out here in Oregon, and we always competed well. Um, but that's changed. 
Uh, Oregon still puts out a number of good kids for the size of a state that we are. But, um, yeah, it's different. It's just different. The approach is different now. The coaches, the high school coaches don't spend as much time directly with their own kids like we used to. It's more of the uh, all-star thing, which, you know, has its, I think it has its bonuses for the really, really good kids. I think it has its uh, 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 less of an impact for the kids that aren't on those teams. But so, yeah, we're still proud of what goes on in Oregon, but uh, I don't, I don't think it's quite what it was. Yeah. And it's amazing. Um, Of course, the university of Oregon women's program has really started to shine. Now you have the best player in the country out there. Um, but it hasn't been like that for a while. Why now the University of Oregon seem like they're really stepping up? Are they, are they recruiting a lot of Oregon kids, or are they just re- recruiting nationally? Yeah, they're they're a, they're way more of a national uh, brand. In fact, I'm trying to think on the U of O team. I don't know that there's any Oregon kids on the U of O team. There's <laughs> been a couple on Oregon State, which is a national brand at this point too, and. Uh, Right. But, you know, one of the things, I'll give him a little shout out, the assistant coach at University of Oregon uh, is a pretty special recruiter. Um, you know, it's Brad Smith's son-in-law, in fact. And okay. uh, Mark was the uh, head coach, or excuse me, assistant coach at Oregon State when they got started and did a lot of the recruiting. Now he's at Oregon and does he, he does just such a – uh, great job that uh, they bring in a lot. And Kelly's been around, you know, and uh, the way they play in the facilities yeah. that Oregon has and, you know, they, they're, they're a national brand and they're going to be there for a long time. Yeah. When you got Phil Knight kind of backing you, that's pretty good, right, Mark? That's really good. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't lack a whole lot <laughs> in Eugene. Right. Uh, I think I think all the colleges out here. Are, I, I, we live right next to uh, University of Georgia in Athens, so we're we're right here in, in mid Georgia, um, and it's it's all about Georgia out here, man. It's big time, um, but we're not as good as Oregon, though. I mean, we have a long ways to go, Coach. I want you to talk some basketball. I, I love your top five because I think that I think you have to have a, a a priority list, right? You have to have a vision of what you're doing as a coach uh, before you start planning your X's and O's. Talk about your top five of your program building. Well, and, and you know, it's kind of like we've all read books by other coaches, right? The Pat Summits, the Mike Krzyzewski's, those kind of guys. And when they write their books about their top, whatever they are, um, uh, the, the things that make them successful, uh, of course, those could. The reason they write those books is even business people or school principals or whoever reads those things. And so many of those top five, uh, you know, aren't, uh, you know, aren't X's and O's. I mean, you know, one of the things I I always thought was most important is I wanted the brand of our kids to be a certain way, and I and that you know I wanted them to be top top-notch kids. I wanted them to display uh, a sportsmanship that regardless of where they were at uh, in the season, a game or whatever, that it was at as good as anybody's. I wanted them to be able to compete uh, as hard as they could. I wanted them to learn those life skills. 
there needed to be discipline uh, from a personal and a uh, athletic standpoint. So all those things were really important to me. So when I was talking vision or, um, you know, what I wanted my team to look like, I, I wanted them to represent us in a top-notch way when they were on the basketball court and when they were off. And uh, that was more important to me than wins and losses, although I knew those attributes led to, you know, wins and losses. Um, you, you know, we talked a little bit about relationships. I think that's important in building trust. And I also think you got to get the right people on the boat or the right people uh, on the bus, as they say. Uh, one of the philosophies I always had, you had to be able to cut your best player. If your best player uh, doesn't fit into what you're doing and can't, uh, you know, can't act and, and perform and do the things you want them to do, then they can't be there because the, uh, the, uh, larger group is more important than than any uh, one person, and then hopefully you right. you as a coach set the example of hard work and outwork people, and you want your kids to. So those are just you know some of the things uh, before you ever got into uh, even talking about the style that you would play. Uh, um, those were more important to me about building a basketball program. And, and, you know, when you say building a basketball program, I'm talking about from, you know, third grade up or, or whatever, um, not just your varsity kids. So, uh, yeah, those, those are some of the foundational things that I think that are, that are important um, trying to build a basketball program. Yeah. And you mentioned also uh, you had, you had, you have to have high expectations for everyone in your program and, and you have to hold people accountable, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what, how I use the example, example of you gotta, you gotta have the courage to be able to. Hey, this is NBA skills coach, Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball. And I'd love to help you get game results this season. Check out a free trial of my Pure Sweat training app on the Google play and app store today. Hello, this is Craig Reed, owner and CEO of Corny Board Aids. We specialize in providing coaching aids and equipment for the basketball coach. We are also home of the Corny Board, the original sideline coaching board. I want to recommend Championship Vision Podcast. It is a great way to get insights into what other great coaches and leaders do in their programs. Kevin Furtado brings a great tool to coaches with this podcast. Thanks, Coach Furtado cut your best player. So, you, I mean, that's drastic, right? That's at the end of the road when you can't work something out. Some Somebody's got to go, even if they're the best. But that doesn't happen to most kids. Um, but, you know, a lot of these kids in their lives have um, people surrounding them that can give them those things. But there's a lot of kids that don't. And our job is to be able to uh, hold kids accountable personally and athletically to help them grow. And, uh, you know, uh, if they do great and if they don't, then, you know, it's time to cut them loose and just say, Hey, look, it's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't want to help you, but I can't. And so here's the consequence, you know, you're not going to be able to, to be here. And, uh, the, those are the drastic ones that happen often, but you got to be able to do that. Yeah, your culture drives your whole program, right? Right, Mark? I mean, you can't have kids on there that 
um, or bringing everybody else down. But I, it that's hard to do because there's pressure. There's pressure from administrations, from parents. Yeah, right? exactly. And it and I got to tell you, uh, it it hasn't gotten any easier, right? With parents, <laughs> no, yeah, it, it hasn't. hasn't. <laughs> it is not the expectations of parents and them uh, getting all the accolades and scholarships and all those is is gone off the charts anymore. And so, yes, it's harder and harder, but. That's so I do think the most successful coaches are the ones that have the courage to stand up. And like I said, when you have a vision or a plan, you don't deviate. And when you go, this is what I expect out of our kids. And if they can't do it, I'm not going to have to deviate. I'm going to have to excuse this person or whatever, because culture, as you said, is number one. Um, It's number one on a, uh, an athletic field, a court. It's number one in a school. It's, it's, and if you listen to all these other great coaches, college coaches, they'll tell you it's number one in their programs and even in business. So, yeah, I'm, I totally buy, buy into that. And hopefully that that's what was the backbone of our program. I want to ask you a tough question because you've been an administrator. You had to hire coaches, probably fire coaches as well. When, if you know a coach is really going through all those five and really building great kids, but is not winning. What do you do as a principal? Because I know that's a lot of pressure, particularly these days. And I'm sure back when you coach as well, when does that decision, I mean, he's, he's doing everything he can. He just doesn't have the talent. When does, when does that decision come with, Hey, we got to make a change. That's, I know it's a tough question for you, but I really would like to know your insight. Yeah. I mean, I've been in all those situations and, uh, you know, I, I had the experience of being a coach, and so that helped me as an administrator. But if they if they're doing all the things I'm asking them to do, and uh, they're doing the best of what we can do of what we have, if we're reaching our potential, wins and losses don't do not come into play for me in deciding who's going to be a coach, stay, not stay. That doesn't happen. When we can't get to the potential, the best potential of our kids, um, because I was a coach and because I built relationships with people, I tried to work really hard, sit people down, talk to them, give them suggestions. Here's what I think we ought to do. And if it got to the point where you just, uh, this person just isn't going to be able to get it done, you know, then you uh, respectfully, um, you know, put somebody else in there. But that just didn't happen a whole lot for me, which I'm glad. But I, I had some issues, especially at my last school that was a high poverty school. We weren't going to be successful. Um, and parents would come in. And you got to be able to sit down with parents and say, I got, I got bigger goals for these kids than whether we won or not. And uh, our coach is getting the job done, and he's going nowhere. So that's just how we're going to do it. And so I think it helped me having experience being in athletics and being around coaching to know when to pull the trigger and when not to. Yes. You think that's vital. Um, Another tough question is, is that a principal, I guess if you don't have experience in athletics or haven't coached, I think it's important for administrators to have some type of coaching experience because athletics is a big part of school. What's your philosophy on oh, that? Oh, that's, that's – I'm 100% behind <laughs> it. Now, if 
I, I would say this. If I, I, I wish every principal had athletic coaching background, but we just know that's not going to happen. So my recommendation right. though would be to any administration, if you're the principal and you don't have that background, hire somebody as a VP or somebody on your administrative staff that can give you the background uh, on those kinds of decisions. Be, because I, I just, I get really discouraged watching good coaches get let go because parents put, pres- sure. put pressure on administrators who don't know enough about what goes on in athletics, and then they end up removing them. And uh, that's, that's really frustrating and disappointing. Yeah, and it, I do think it's happening a lot. As you well know, you've probably seen it a lot too. I think that's something that we need to change as a profession. Uh, but it's hard to do. I guess you got to do it. You know, one, you know, each individual school at a time. Hey, you've had a great overall record. Your record's unbelievable, man. I'm jealous. Four hundred thirty-six and eighty-eight. You won two state championships. Five-time Oregon Coach of the Year. Tell us. I want you to talk basketball with us because you you won a state title at Glencoe and Westview. Tell us how you would build an offense and defensive system because there's a lot of coaches that listen to me and they want to know, hey, they got a they got they're coming into a new situation. How do they build an offense and defensive uh, system? Well, so, from yeah, the ground so, up, um, knowing uh, what I know now, uh, you know, I've been out of. I've been a principal the last 20 years, so I haven't, uh, but I watch <laughs> basketball very closely and, and it's changed so much from when I, when I was coaching, we played the game offensively from inside out. And even though you still do with sure. offenses now trying to get to the rim and get to the foul line and all that, ours was feeding the big person, right? Post person with their back to the basket. And when they collapse, kick it out and shoot And you know, that's, that's what I, I knew. And now with the whole dribble drive and uh, screen all, ball screens and all that kind of stuff, I do. There's some real uh, value to that as, uh, you know, I'm taking the three instead of the mid-range jumper. I, you know, that's probably the way to go. Where kids, they've got better skills now, uh, puts more pressure on people. Uh, but I watch a lot of high school kids that, uh, you know, can't do that. And uh, so what do you do? I mean, you've got to do whatever is best for your kids. And that's a little hard for me to say, well, here's what you ought to be doing. I think you still base whatever you're doing uh, for sure offensively um, on the type of kids that you have. And uh, so I'm probably not going to help anybody in a, in a big way on that. I get the analytics, the three pointers and the at the rim shots as opposed to the mid-range. And if you're a really good high school team, you can do that. If you're not a really good high school team, you know, you're going to have to find other ways just to try to score. But, um, you know, defensively, I still always believe this. And Mike Meek, uh, here's what I love about him. He's been at the high school level. He went to D3 level. He goes to D1 level. And he's – Pressure, pressure, pressure from inline to inline. And people right. say you can't do that anymore. <laughs> I still think I still think you can do it. I still believe in that. Um, I still believe in uh, pressuring full court. Uh, I still believe pressuring in half court. And uh, I'd rather somebody put the ball on the ground than stand and shoot a three if the team's good. So 
but you still have to be able to defend even with a three-pointer from inside out. You, you still can't let people just get to the rim and score all day long. And I still believe in that. And, uh, you know, that's probably kind of my basketball philosophies. I've been out of it for a while. If I went back in it, those would still be the, you know, the, still be the way I'd try to figure out how to, how to play the game. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you came back today, and you probably you probably would love to do it. Probably only for a year because I know it it's, it takes up a lot of time and so forth. But I always love when I when I listen to coaches um, that have coached, you know, back in the seventies and eighties. I love talking to you guys because I really don't think the game. I still think the game can play inside out, even though I use the three point shot a lot. Um, I'm curious to find out if a team who shot no threes and just played the inside, the double low post, the mid range, how far they would go. I, I really like to test that, particularly at the high school level. What adjustments would you make, though, if you came back today? Would you actually include the three point shot a lot? Would you go more well, no, of an inside? I'd the, I would include the three point shot. I think with the inside and what I would do a little differently, you know. Now, because the defense is spread out so far, uh, I probably wouldn't have a double low post, even though that's what I used to do. I'd probably have, you know, four out and one in uh, uh, like they're doing now and open up the driving, uh, the lanes and uh, shoot more threes. The difference what I would do now is I, I would have a single low post and we'd be shooting more threes. You know, it was important to us back in the day mm -hmm. that we were in a little tighter so the feed to the post was a little quicker and they could turn and get the ball up quicker. You know, now because they're so spread out, you can throw them in and let them play butt ball, right? They can back down a little bit, do a couple, you know, spin moves and then sure. put it up. So you'd have to train the posts a little different and uh, take your threes. No, I wouldn't – I would not be – it's – it's. I've watched it develop. There's all kinds of – especially girls and even high school that can shoot threes and shoot them well. So, um, yeah, I don't know how far you'd go with a double low post and feeding it down there. Uh, I guess if you were, <laughs> I guess if you had two real studs, you could still do it, but um, I, I don't think you'd eliminate the three. Absolutely. And I, uh, what we do, we have a big six foot girl. So give me some help here. We have a, we, we're a four-out, one-in team, but I tell you what I love doing, Mark, because I love – I have a really good guard that's going to be playing at the next level. I love putting her down in the post because guards cannot guard it in the post, right? So we do a lot of that. We kind of – we make – we have them cut through and then post. And to me, that's an easy way to get inside. Well, I'm totally with that. that. We used to do the same thing. We, we had a couple – you know, six foot guards that could really jump. They could really had moves down there. And I totally with you who, who spends a whole lot of time teaching their guards, how to go down and defend a both. And so sometimes that can be <laughs> right. really, uh, you know, easy gimme. So, uh, I, I love that concept. And, um, uh, I think, I still think anytime you can get a layup, you can take it. And if that's what it is to get a layup, uh, take it. And uh, so, yeah, that works. Use it. Yeah. And I'm not sure if we're doing a good enough. I, I include myself in this is we got to become better uh, right now. It's, it's hard to develop a back to the basket player. 
kids nowadays seem to like to face up better. And I even talking to Mike about this. It's hard to get kids to, you know, I mean, you know, your drop steps, you know, your power moves, man, they seem to just kind of shy away from that. I mean, we have to do a bit. We have to really coach kids up in the post. Yeah, it, it, I'm with you. I watch young kids coming up now that are six, three, six, four at the ninth and 10th grade level. And they don't want anything to do with going down below. They want to, you know, they want to stand outside and shoot the three. And so it, it is. And, um, you know, those that are versatile and can do both obviously have a um, big impact on a, on a game. And uh, it's different that that part I would have to uh, probably adjust to a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Coach, talk to me about, um, putting together a coaching staff. Everybody thinks it's really easy. To me, that's the hardest part is to get loyal, dedicated coaches on your staff, particularly at small schools. Give me some advice there. Yeah, you might have to give me some advice. <laughs> that's, a, you know, that is a tough one. Now, I had it easier. Like I said, I've been out 20 years back. Uh, and But I've had to do the hiring, right? I've had to hire head coaches and try to help them find assistance that is really, really hard these days because there's less and less people that are dedicated to wanting to spend the time, especially as assistant coaches. Um, you know, they don't want to put up with the fundraising that everybody has to do now. They don't want to put up with the parents. The priorities are different than they used to. Um, I don't know that I have any real advice for anybody. It's You're just really, really fortunate when you can find people who fit your philosophy, who want to work that long with you and are loyal and dedicated to the program, uh, it's hard to find them. So I, I don't, I don't have any advice on how to find them. You just hope if you do get them, you can hang on to them, but hard to do. It is hard to do. I've, I actually, um, this is what I recommend for I've been coach. This is my 30th year of coaching. And uh, one of my former players is now my assistant this year. Talk about a blessing to have a former player. Now, not everybody can do that. Do you think it's a principal's responsibility to go out and not only help the coach get good people on his staff, but to hire really good people, not, not just good teachers, but really people that can help and be a good solid assistant, they don't have to be really knowledgeable, right? But they can, they're really good yeah, with the kids. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you, it's, it's why we were talking at the beginning of this program, how do you find the right people to hire? And uh, it'd be nice if they knew a lot of basketball and could really help, but they can learn that. It's the other skills that, that you really need to find. And I do think where principals can help coaches it was a philosophy of mine to get as many coaches on staff as I as I possibly could including assistant coaches because those are the ones that spend the most time develop relationship with, with kids they they always are there to give back to the school and that's how you keep them right you got a job for them and uh, so I was really big into that and I think it helps with your participation after school because uh, you build a lot of relationships, you get them in after school, but um, it's, it's hard to find. Like we said, Kevin, it's hard to find anymore. It's hard to get the right ones. And boy, if you can 
I, I'm with you. If you can ever get an ex-player who is loyal to you and love the program, wants to be there, what a blessing that's got to be. It, it's so it's so true on that. And we, um, I mean, I mean, she remembers. It's funny. I, we're on the same page, but the same token, she is not afraid to tell me, Coach, this is not right. And I love that because I don't want to. I don't want a yes person helping me out i want somebody's going to give me the truth and she's really good the kids she really connects with the kids great um and i coach girls so i think having a good female coach that is loyal to me is really yeah, important no question just finding somebody loyal can be you know can be tough that's really exactly <laughs> that's really uh the number one thing in your assistance and wherever you're at is that loyalty that's so true. Coach, I want to talk about feeder program because I would imagine at Glencoe and Westview, you had really good feeder programs. Tell us, because I know Mike Meek spoke about his, Kurt Gelsdorf spoke to me about his at Oregon City. Talk about two great programs, Southridge and Oregon City. I mean, he, he was working with their kids, you know, when they were really young. That's important. You better have a good feeder program right to kind of build a successful yeah uh, and i think that's a little bit of the difference between nowadays i don't know everywhere outside of oregon but it's uh for whatever reason it's harder to run feeder programs now in oregon than it used to be but our our program basically was from the third grade up and we yeah we had great access with our grade school teachers they were great. Uh, you know, I grew up in town, so I knew a number of them and, and they would help us. But um, we did some other things. We during the basketball season, it took a lot of work and our kids helped a lot. But we would form uh, third, fourth, fifth and sixth grade basketball teams at the grade school level by their school and bring them over to the high school at Glencoe on Saturday mornings. And they'd play the other grade schools in town, which we had about I don't know, 10 or 12 grade schools at the time. And so we'd play, they'd play two games a day for like six or seven weeks. And then, you know, we'd run summer camps like everybody else and have some clinics. And and then our seventh and eighth graders, they were in the middle schools, uh, but we were responsible for them. They had cut the funding for them. So, you know, back then I could find people that um, really wanted to coach them, that wanted to be a part of it. And uh, we put in a lot of time running it, but uh, you know, you s- start with a lot of kids, right? And by the time they get to the varsity, you're down to five, six, seven seniors. And uh, so there's a lot of screening and hopefully you keep a lot of those kids by the time you get there and uh, they've learned your philosophies and your uh, skills and all those things. By t- that's to me, that's the only way to run a, uh, program that's consistently successful. Yeah, I, I, like out here in Atlanta. We're... Hey, this is NBA skills coach Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball, and I've been working hard to build an online basketball school to help players and coaches. I'd love for you to check it out at puresweatbasketball.com. Hi, I'm Alex Stevenson, athletic director and girls basketball coach at Dodd City. I've been at Dodd City for seven years. During those seven years, we've won seven district championships, been to six regional tournaments and three state championship games. I'm a huge fan of this podcast, what it brings and the platform that we're able to share 
knowledge and wisdom on and, and grow as coaches. A small single A school. And Mark, I'm very fortunate. I teach K5 PE. I know all these kids. So I, you know, I have, you know, I have, I connect with all of them. So it really helps me in my feeder program when I run my camps. So, but there's a lot of big schools out here in Georgia that um, I don't even think they know their feeder teams, um, but the really good ones, they really connect. They're, they're out there connecting with those kids, really working with them. It yeah, sounds like what, that's what you do. Total did. correlation between consistent, um, you know, championship level play as com- compared to once while you get a great group that comes through and you have good teams. And we always want to consistently be able to play at the top level. And that, and the only way to do it is through hard work and developing your younger kids. Now there, I don't know much about Georgia, but I, I know in some of the other States uh, we got to know the Northwest and some of California, some of those schools would just get transfer after transfer after transfer. And, you know, they were fortunate and they could have good teams every year because kids were transferring. But if, if you're going to develop uh, in your district, a consistent successful program, you're going to have to spend some time with your younger kids. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and this, this is kind of off the topic a little bit. What do you think Because out here? The transfer rate is unbelievable. People are moving all the time and it seems to be a problem nationally. I don't think it's a good, I don't think it's a good situation when kids are transferring, there's kids that transfer from school to school to school. Uh, first of all, why is that happening? And secondly, could that lead to major problems down the road just on, being loyal well, to I think an organization. That's a really good point. And I, I think, especially in girls basketball, maybe in boys too, but mostly girls, what happens is it's hard to find good coaches, committed coaches. And a lot of programs just keep turning over their coaches, whether it's they can't, they don't hire the right one in the first place, or the administration isn't supportive. And so parents, I, I'm not backing up transferring at all. I'm totally against it. But I've watched and I kind of understand sometimes when a really good kid gets into a really bad situation and they go, hey, I, you know, for the betterment of our kids, some parent goes, I'm moving them over here so they get some better training or whatever. Um, I don't like that, but I get it. Um, So there's kind of two sides to that a little bit. Uh, I, I think from the life lesson perspective, if you're good enough, regardless of who's coaching or what team you're on, they're going to find you. You can find summer programs to play on that are going to help you. I don't think you need to move, but I, a little bit, I, I've watched some that yeah, I kind of understand why they're moving, but to be a big problem, I go back. I think the perspective of parents is, is different and way out there more than it's ever been. And, uh, they, they take drastic measures thinking that their kids are going to be rewarded by college scholarships or whatever else it is by, by moving. So I like the life lesson part of it more, how to deal with adversity and grow through it. But, uh, you know, that's not what everybody feels. <laughs> that's a good point. No. Um, and I think it's happening on the travel circuit too. I mean, I have, I have players that, we actually, we have our own travel team, so but we run it a certain way. But my best players on a Nike Elite team, 
Um, and they're, they're picking up players all the time. I mean, it, it's crazy. Um, so what do you think about now what's going on, Mark? There's no travel ball. Kids have to actually go out. Check this out. They have to go out like you and I did out to the driveway and start practicing. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like it's, I mean, it's like, it's like foreign to them. Um, do you think now kids will get better by getting out there on oh, their own I, and practicing I've in the front yard? That. Kevin, I've always felt like, you know, we got into, we got into a <laughs> societal type of situation where because we have all these um, so-called experts on the side and I can pay for my kid to go get help. And then we have all these teams that everybody pays to, to try to get better. They'd rather do that than just go out and learn on your own. And, uh, and I, I think there's some real um, advantage to just going out and playing like we used to play and figure out what you can do and how to, without so much structured instruction all the time. And so I'm totally for pickup games and let them play and let them figure out stuff is has really changed and it costs them so much money to do it which is interesting so yeah i'm 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 for the hey yeah. go get the ball and go get your friends and figure it out but that that's old school that is old school and i think um i think i, I had a coach tell me the other day he's a trainer he says he, he loves teaching the old school, that method of getting in the driveway, but also the new school with the, the video analysis. Kids need feedback these days. For some reason, kids have a they struggle on learning on their own for whatever reason. I think it's a big part of how they're being taught, to be honest with you. I think you have to let kids go and figure it out. We talk about that a lot in our practice. Yeah, what that's, do you think? that's where I'm at. And, and, uh, you know, we all can be too controlling probably in some of our coaching, but the kids who are really, really good, you know, they figured it out between the years how to play. And uh, um, sure, they may need – I get the analytical part of breaking down maybe their shot or how to help them on some skills here and there. But I, what I'm talking about is learning how to play, developing. I, I think there's some real advantage just letting them go. Yeah, and I think for us coaches, you know, we have to facilitate, right? Right, Mark? I mean, we can't be telling them every single second, but that's another podcast, right, on how to teach correctly. And I, um, I'm i sure you have your own philosophy on how you teach your kids. Talk about my final question is, is practice. I think your great coaches can run a great practice. I, th I think all – if I walk into Mark Nevendorf's practice, I can tell in the first 10 to 15 minutes – what your program's about. Do you I totally agree with that? that? Yeah. I think if you walk into somebody's practice and there is uh, high intensity, uh, kids are focused, there's not a lot of standing around, regardless of what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're practicing skill, running plays, whatever. Um, you you've, uh, focus and intensity, a work ethic, of whatever you're doing. You can see that the minute you walk in 
And if you walk into somebody's practice and they're working on shooting and the girls are standing there talking to one another and flipping a few up and moving around, um, I, I don't believe you get better that way. I don't, I don't think the practice is structured to be as good as you should be. If you got a lot of kids that they're sitting down, which I never let anybody sit down. If they're uh, mentally, you can see they're not into it because you're not coaching your whole team. You're just coaching some people, you know, a few of the, the starters or whatever. Uh, practice is ineffective. Your team's not going to be as good. So, Kevin, I'm totally with you. I think you can go watch a practice and within minutes tell somebody's running something that uh, is uh, positive, uh, is they're, they're getting corrected, they're getting better. Uh, yeah, I totally believe that. And really no wasted time. I mean, there's, there's always going to be wasted time here or there, but don't you believe that when those kids cross the line, then it's time to uh, go to absolutely. work, Absolutely. Right? And, uh, you know, we've all had the days where I've even done this, or I've had the days where, okay, it's not, it's not mattering what I'm doing, no matter what's happening here. This just isn't working. Uh, I'll just send them home. I'll just say, okay, you know, see ya. Let's, <laughs> let's try this. And, and I yeah. mean, they know I'm not happy when you do that. It isn't like, hey, this is a reward. And uh, the good teams want to be there, but we all have our days. But, um, yeah, if, you, if we're not going to be productive, we're not going to have it either. So, uh, yeah, totally think when you cross the line, everything else is out the door. We got two hours, two and a half, maybe one and a half later in the year or an hour. But whatever we have, you've got to be totally committed and into this so we can get better. Give me a great practice, and I, I know it's probably – it might be tough because you haven't, you haven't coached in a while, but I know you know how you ran your basic practice. Give us, give us as coaches some advice on how you ran your practice at Glencoe or Westview, and just give us a couple good drills that you would even use today that you well, use in the past. Um, this might be not quite the drills, but kind of the system. I mean, we, we every day came in after letting them, I had them get warmed up for the first five minutes on the own. Then every day we went straight to, you know, shooting, working from the short shots all the way out fundamentally. Then we broke down and went into our skill groups, posts on one end, guards, outside people on another one, working on whether it's the ball handling moves, feeds, post moves, so we, we always, especially with the girls, always felt like, um, you know, there's got to be some breakdown and some repetition and get better and better at the skills. Because one of the things when we talked about vision I wanted, I wanted our kids, when they were on the floor, I wanted them to feel prepared and they were fundamentally as good as anybody else. Now, we weren't, you know, any better than Brad Smith's team or Mike Meek's team, but I, I didn't want us to be uh, – you know, less than somebody else. And then we'd move in, you know, to the other stuff. We, whether we're working on our pressure defense, uh, our press break stuff, working down into our half court stuff. And then as I got older, we, we spent a little less time on the breakdown stuff and a little more time on the full court stuff and just kind of letting them go. Uh, I think at least for me and some of my friends, I think we're always a little more controlling when we were younger instead of just letting them play. So, um, you know, inside those are, there's drills, certainly ball handling drills and shooting drills, but, um, that's kind of how I don't think my practice, 
deviated from that very much in 20 years. That, that was successful for me. That's how I ran a practice. And of course, when you're in the middle of the season, you're going to use part of your practice maybe to get ready for the opposition um, as well. But we use a lot of game tape. I mean, we filmed a lot of stuff. We broke it down for the girls a lot, wanted them to see it. It wasn't analytical, uh, you know, from the statistics as they do nowadays, but it was certainly breaking it down so they could see it and understand what was good and what wasn't good. So that, that was kind of our kind of practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love what you said, because I think there's still, I mean, how much individual work and I, I've spoken to you know, a lot of coaches and there's so many coaches feel like the best way to teach the game is five on five. And I know you still got to break it down to individual skills, but I hear more and more coaches talking about, Hey, you want to learn how to play the game and you can stop it and teach but they need to play as much five on five as possible. Everything has yeah, to be game-like. I think so. Right? I, I, I really do. And I think it's, uh, again, as we mature as coaches and start seeing, it goes back to what you were saying about, should they just go out and play or do they have to be, you know, broken down into skills all the time? I, I finally realized after a few years of coaching that, Hey, I'm, I got them doing exactly what I want, but then they get into a game and there's some things that come up that, you know, maybe I didn't do a good enough job on. So those started to become more familiar as they just played. And so I'm, I'm way more into letting them go and would be now uh, with, as you said, there's got to be some breakdown, especially for girls and making them understand, but yeah, totally. I think it's, uh, I, I think that's where it's at. And you, they got to know how to play and be able to react on their own. So when you're teaching, let's say you're going to five on five coach and you're teaching, do you stop and, and really talk them all through it? Or do you just, are you very short and quick to the point on how you teaching? And um, okay. So I'm, correct. I'm kind of in between. I, I can't stand letting mistakes go because if they do it, they didn't get. So I stop it. I might <laughs> point it out real quick and we go again. Sometimes what I found out is early in the year, it was hard. I just kept stopping and stopping and stopping and stopping. But as the year went on, you know, they'd start to learn and they'd get more into understanding and playing and you'd stop at less and have less to say. But I, I was just one of those guys. I wanted them to understand and I was a corrector and I would stop. But as it went along, we got better and better and better and I had to do it less and less and less. So there's, there's probably a happy medium in there somewhere, but that's how I did it. Yeah, absolutely on that. And I'm, and I, you know, I guess I've learned a little bit over my 30 years of coaching too. I'm actually to the point now, Mark, where I allow my captains or my player, my leaders on the team to actually coach. I might say, Hey, you know, uh, destiny, Hey, go talk to your team about, you know, um, getting more on the help side and I'm allowing my players to coach themselves more. I don't know. I guess I'm yeah, changing are, too, I, I guess. That's good because I think what that does it, we look at um, I know way more now as a coach. I wish I would have known as a player. And so what you're doing is allowing them to kind of see it from your perspective and be able to pass on. I think that knowledge is really good. Yeah, absolutely. 
Coach, man, I really appreciate you jumping on here. I know uh, there's a lot going on in the country and so forth now, and I appreciate you sharing. I have a lot of coaches that listen and love hearing from legends like yourself. So I really appreciate you joining us. Hey, give us one last piece of advice for a coach out there or um, for even, you know, uh, an offer some advice for a player or a coach that is maybe just starting in the game. Now. Well, I've always said the cornerstone for everything is hard work. So if, if the, the one thing you can't do, if you're going to be really, really good, is you can't get outworked. And I know that's uh, kind of trivial. It's cliche. It's whatever. But my two boys are college baseball coaches right now. And I, I tell them that all the time is you can't get outworked. And that's where it starts. You got to have that work ethic, right? I mean, you might be people that are going to be smarter than you, That's but nobody's exactly going to outwork right. you. You can't right? get outwork because if you do, you're already at a disadvantage. And I think that's, uh, again, the cornerstone of success is that you got to have a work ethic and a real love for what you're doing or, you know, you're going to be mediocre at best. Right. And that's and that's constantly learning. Right. So outworking is not just on the court, man. You're constantly learning, going to clinics, yeah, things mean, like that. I, right, I think when I was off the floor, I was doing obviously that's a couple hours a day. I, I'm thinking it, watching film, uh, watching it used to be videos back in my day. Now it's other stuff. But, um, you know, just watching, learning and continuing. I always tried to stay ahead. of uh, My goal was to be ahead of the opposition when I was coaching against them, that whatever we were doing or trying, uh, we were ahead of them uh, doing, doing things better than they were doing. And uh, that, that just comes from hard work. There's, you, you got to love it. You just got to love it. Yeah, it's so true. That's great advice. Coach, thank you so much for joining us, man. I appreciate it. You gave us all just a wealth of knowledge um, how could, if anybody wanted to contact you and seek you out, what's the best way to contact you? Do you have, are you on social media? Do you have a good email? They, I know I have yours, but what would I you would like to provide? Probably my email. I don't do a lot of other social media. So my email is fine. If, if you have it and want it out there, that's great. That doesn't bother me at all. Absolutely. I'll share it on, on the website. Coach, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's always great to talk to you, Oregon legends, man. It's it's unbelievable. I got to get Brad Smith, man, to get that that um, yeah. Get you the, definitely the have to get Brad Smith. That's that's a once I have to. <laughs> okay, Coach, thank you so thank much. You, I appreciate Kevin, your I really wisdom. Appreciate thank it. you so much. Bye. All right, take care now. Hey coaches, this is Brad Hillegas, content producer at Huddle for the NBA, NCAA Division One, and high school basketball. I'm a big fan of Coach Furtado's podcast, Championship Vision, because it connects coaches around the country that want to continue learning and growing our beloved game. The X's and O's, coaching philosophy, teaching principles, they're all here. And that's a mission that we're working on at Huddle as well. More than 160,000 teams, including the best in the world, use Huddle to elevate their performance with video. But our collection of online tools is much more than that. Mobile desktop apps, smart cameras, video editing, data analytics software, the list goes on. But our goal is to help coaches like you teach the game in a modern way, whether that's connecting with your athletes, communicating your game plan, or looking to gain a competitive edge. 
And if you want to see how Huddle can help your program, visit Huddle.com. That's H-U-D-L.com to learn more. And of course, keep listening to the Championship Vision podcast to never stop learning. Hey, this is NBA skills coach Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball, and you are listening to the Championship Vision podcast.